Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lesson is number 26 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 21, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online or if you prefer to listen, check it out at audible.com. Today we cover chapter 2, The Life of David, from hero to fugitive. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! I thought uh, Sunday while I was um, sitting in high council meeting, it might just be interesting uh, in case you didn't have access to them to hear the priesthood bulletins from the first presidency that come out each two months. This one says cola drinks and the word of wisdom. It says the Word of Wisdom, section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants, remains as to terms and specifications exactly as found in that section. There have been no official interpretations of that Word of Wisdom other than that given uh, by the prophet in the very early days of the church when he um, described hot drinks as specifically referring to tea and coffee at that time. With reference to cola drinks, the church has never officially taken a position on this matter, but the leaders of the church have advised, and we do now specifically advise, against the use of any drink containing harmful habit-forming drugs under circumstances that would result in acquiring the habit. Any beverage that contains ingredients harmful to the body should be avoided. What they're trying to do is to keep us away from the law of Moses, where everything was on a checklist, you know, where you go down tea, coffee, alcohol, tobacco, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, etc., whatever's going to be on there, and just say, it's, it's a word of wisdom. I remember when I had an operation a number of years ago, and uh, just could not keep anything down. I, it was impossible. The doctor, who was a fine Latter-day Saint, said, now, here's one time when tea is really helpful. And it may settle your stomach when nothing else will. And I had tried everything else under the sun, even the well-advertised bromos, etc. But uh, in any event, not hot tea, but some warm tea, which contains tannin and caffeine too, by the way. Uh, I drank it, and I was able to... I needed nourishment badly. I was either going to have to take it intravenously or be able to keep this food down. So I, I drank the tea, and and uh, settle me right down. All right, and I said, we're going to do this for about three days, and then you, you should be on your own. After two days, why? I didn't need the tea any longer. But this is the spirit of the church. So that's why it says, under circumstances which would result in acquiring the habit. When I was in the FBI, uh, one night we'd all been up for about 30 hours, and we were going into a situation that might involve uh, shooting and we were in no condition to shoot any of them. We're all bleary-eyed and kind of groggy and wandering around. And uh, it was right during the war, and it was a red-hot situation, and we had no alternative. We just had to go forward, and this was a rough one. Uh, I was in charge of the squad, and I said, well, I, I said to myself, well, I need more energy than I have right now. I need some medicine. And uh, so anyway, I drank a Coke. And because I never drank Cokes, you should have seen what it did to me. I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and so forth, right now, right fast. Whereas fellows that drank coffee or drank Coke with, every, with sandwiches every day, they, had, they couldn't get any help out of it at all. 
In fact, they'd been grogging themselves with coffee all night. This is what, what they're talking about. If you were driving all night, for example, and uh, never made a habit of drinking Coke, and you, you could very well go to sleep and kill yourself and those with you, and you took a Coke uh, to stimulate your faculties, you may not want to do that, but someone balancing it out might choose to do it, and the brethren don't want us to point a finger to them and say they're very bad people, you see, because they did that. This is what they're trying to do, keep this in the realm of reason and wisdom. As you know, some years ago, Brother Widzow came out and pointed out how many harmful things there were going into a lot of the food and how many good things were being refined out of it. And we had a period there when they had what they called the, the, the Word of Widzow people. Actually, that is an excellent book. And those of you who uh, are dietitians and specialists, you'll know that he was right on. He was a, it's a very well-written book and, and carefully prepared. But people were becoming a little fanatical about it. If you were reading white sugar and white bread, you see, you were a sinner. So that was ridiculous. And um, so the brethren saw what was happening. So they stopped all of that and then pointed out to the saints that we were not going back to the law of Moses where we have our checklist, our blacklist. Okay, then it says sales activities by church-sponsored groups the church is very anxious not to become involved in commercial enterprises. And therefore, they've, they've taken out of our Relief Society and out of our elders' quorums and so forth uh, all sales projects. The 70s are still allowed to have bookstores, but uh, that may even go some time. Usually they've been allowed where uh, church books were not otherwise available. Uh, that's the way it started out. But the principle is an, an important one to keep in mind. We discourage the conduct of all sales activities by any church-sponsored group which creates direct competition with local merchants and businessmen. Okay. Priesthood bulletins. This is February 72. Now you've seen enough of this uh, amazing personality known as David to realize what a, what a singular person he was and why all of the ancient writers uh, made such a to-do about his life, and what a terrible tragedy it was in the eyes of his, great, uh, his, his descendant, the, the Jesus the Savior, who would come through his loins when he finally fell. But I think the Lord's trying to tell us something in this man's life, and I personally don't think we have the final story. In his wisdom, God has withheld from us what this man actually will eventually have the potential of attaining. But he wants us to know that no matter how high we climb, even if we're a David, we can fall, and that the principles of morality, uh, of uh, taking of life, and all of these things apply to a prophet of God, and to a king, and to one of the most beloved of the Lord. It just, there are no exceptions. The law is the law in heaven, and God does not look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. He's not a allowed to. Our Father is not. And those who repent, they can be forgiven if it doesn't involve murder or sin against the Holy Ghost, providing they repent and bring it under the cleansing, blotting out effect of the atonement, which we will be discussing later. Now, it was such a sensational thing for this David uh, to dare to do, to have the faith to do what he did when everybody knew that Goliath was really challenging whom? 
Saul, that man that was head and shoulders above everybody else. That's really who Goliath was after. He wanted the, well, the, the, the pugilistic satisfaction of having knocked over the, the big man of Israel. Uh, but Saul knew better than to measure himself against Goliath with that 18-pound spearhead. And so that's why he has hesita hesitated, even at the risk of being called a coward. But somehow, when, when he found out that David actually had had the intervention of God in his behalf to take on a lion and a bear single-handed and rip them apart with his bare hands, yes, he said, if God loves you that much, I think that he would help you in this case. But he did try to protect him with an armor, and of course, when that didn't uh, help at all, why, there you have that singular situation where this people could be put into bondage if this fellow doesn't come out right, and he comes running down the side of that hill in, in an ordinary shepherd's tunic with a shepherd's staff and a piece of leather and a couple of strings and five pebbles. They seem to have had both of the armies up here looking down into one of these deep gullies that I told you about. They go down from 500 to 1,000 feet. And it was far enough down, so they all got a chance, you see, to look down and see what's happening. And here's David in this tunic running down the side of this mountain and throwing his staff away. But that was as much as uh, Goliath could stand. And then he got up off the ground and rumbled out and said, You come up against me as a dog with a stick? That's, David gave him a nice answer. In fact, it must have electrified all those Philistines standing up there. Wouldn't it be fantastic if something just happened, this big boy stumbled or something, and this, this kid was able to get at him. Uh, but, but anyway, he shouted at the top of his voice. He said, this day the God of Israel will show you who has the strength, and the carrion, the fowls, and the beasts of the, uh, of the forest will devour thy flesh. With that, why he put the pebble in the sling and round his head it went. I've watched those those boys, they fascinate me. I've used the flipper crotch approach and you get pretty good at that. But this business, you know, going on and knowing exactly when to let go of one of those strings and give it that jerk that really whir whirls it through the air. It's fascinating. It really is a great skill. And that thing cracked right below his helmet line and down went Goliath not dead, but stunned, badly stunned. He was really, it was a KO. And so uh, uh, he ran up there and took his sword, his own sword, and beheaded him. Now, the shock of the Philistines up there and the amazement of the Israelites, and so the Philistines took off down the side of the slopes toward the valley, down toward the plains, the, Philistine, the Israelites finally came to their senses and went after them. And, of course, they got all of their wealth that they abandoned up on top. Because in those days, they would have them take all their riches into the field of battle. Why? Everybody had to bring all their own wealth. Why did they have to do that? So they'd fight. Fight, fight better, you see. So, boy, when you won, and if you could get, the, get to the camp, you see, if they didn't have time to scoop up things before they departed, you really came out good. Real good. I made it very worthwhile to be a soldier. In any event, uh, they took off and they chased them all the way to their cities. Now, when they came back, one of those, the Bible says, that was so jubilant about how this turned out was the crown prince. He was just elated. 
Uh, it was something he kind of liked to have taken on himself. He was a real fine person, this crown prince. What was his name? Jonathan. The Bible says that he was so delighted with this David. He was, they were men of the same spirit. And you see, Jonathan's a much older man. He's, uh, oh, at least 10 to 12 years older. Uh, he was a general and fighting uh, as the second in command under his father when little David was still just a, a fuzzy bearded boy out there getting his anointing as king. So we know there's quite a distance difference in their ages. But this crown prince, he, he just, as far as he's concerned, this David is the greatest. And so he took off his mantle and put it on David's shoulders and gave him his bow and his arrows and, and his shield and patted him on the back and said, let's, all, let's us always be friends. So they made a covenant with each other. They'd always be friends. Now, we have an interesting thing happen between these two men. The last time that they meet, which will be after Saul has tried to murder David a dozen times, Jonathan will say, David, God wants you to be king, and I'm going to be your right-hand man. That's the crown prince talking. This Jonathan was great. Now, within weeks, he was killed by the Philistines. Now, this Jonathan was a great person. He was like Saul before Saul fell. So anyway, David came back with this entourage. The king comes marching home in victory. They got a gruesome, bloody uh, uh, thing hanging by some locks of hair called the head of Goliath. And the Bible says they took it to Jerusalem. Now, some scribe made a mistake there because later on when they were summarizing these books, Jerusalem was the capital that was set up by David, but they took it to Gibeah. That was the capital. And it's just up above Jerusalem. It's not Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem was just a little village occupied by some heathens called Jebusites. Some scribe put in and, and they carried the head of Goliath back to Jerusalem. So kind of watch for that because it wasn't the capital yet. It was above Jerusalem at Gibeah where they would have such things, such specimens. It was on the way back that the terrible thing happened to Saul. He was almost schizophrenic since he'd been told he was rejected by Samuel and that one of his neighbors would be the king. So he's around looking at anybody who might be the king. Well, he just won this great victory, so... Uh, uh, no problem of him being replaced right away. I mean, he is the king and we have a victory and my good boy David did it, proud of him. And then the Leaf Society and all the uh, golden gleaners and MIAs and so forth came out and, and stood along the sides of the road like they do. And they do this in Israel a lot. In the War of 67, why all the girls were along the line, sides welcoming back the troops with their songs and their dances. They do this in Israel. And the song that they sang was designed to be a compliment and yet uh, keep the record straight. So they sang out their song, praising Saul who has slain his, in past years of course, not recently, uh, but uh, they especially praised David who had slain his tens of thousands or 10,000. Boy, that cuts all like a knife. And all the way back, horseback I imagine, but perhaps on foot, all the way to Gibeah. It's about 16 miles from where they, uh, had, where the Elah Valley is that where Goliath was killed. Why, you just have him stewing in his own juice about this. That's him. That's the one. 
I bet he's after my kingdom. That's what the Bible says. It looks like he's after my kingdom. That's what more could he want than my, my kingdom itself? It must be the one. So he won't have him as his bodyguard anymore. He'll put him out there where he can get killed. He's not going to kill him. He's too much of a hero But uh, at this point. But in any event, he says he's going to get him killed. Now, the Bible says in one place that it put him in charge of his armies. Is that correct? Now, if you read your footnote, you found out that wasn't correct. We have uh, the uh, subsequent reference that says he was put in charge of what? Captain of a thousand. Uh, Saul, under these circumstances, never would have put him in charge of all his armies. But he did put him in as captain of a thousand, and uh, he thought sure he'd get killed. Did he get killed? Every time that character would go out in a guerrilla attack, he'd come back a hero. Now, when you go to Jerusalem on tour with us, the temple square is right here. And the city of Jerusalem spreads over the hills all around, all around. So, and this is the Hinnom Valley here, and here's the Mount of Olives up here, and here's uh, Beth Page, and here's Bethany, and down there is Jericho, 1,300 feet below sea level. This is how many feet above sea level? Mount Moriah? How many? That's right. Say about 3,000. 3,000 feet above sea level. Now, right up above Jerusalem, it's only about three miles away, is Nob and Gibeah and Ramah. There's a little valley in between, and the main highway goes out of Jerusalem, goes right up between them. So you're just barely out of Jerusalem, and there's Nob. Oh, yeah, and up on that hill, that's Gibeah. That's Saul's old home, and right across the valley, within sight, it's only half a mile away, is Ramah, the home of Samuel and where Samuel was buried. So it's in the vicinity of Jerusalem, but it is outside the city limits. Um, at each time he came back, you had this, this second daughter watching David. Now, uh, whoever killed Goliath was supposed to get the daughter of the king. This, this is how we knew that that story about his being a little boy couldn't have been true because it was shortly after he killed Goliath that he actually did marry a daughter of the king, but not the oldest. For some reason, the Bible doesn't explain, she was betrothed and married another individual. And um, uh, this left Michelle next in line. And she was very happy to be next in line because at the victory dinners, she'd get to watch this David and playing his harp to please her father. She may have been eyeing him for a long time, as a matter of fact. And uh, pretty soon, she's the princess after all, and what she likes, she likes. And she began to let it be known that uh, David, she likes. And uh, so, kind of spread around good court gossip, you know. And uh, it wasn't long before it came to Saul's attention that Michelle really liked David. Well, by this time, he's just boiling in hatred of David, and he sees an opportunity to get David killed. So he sends the word to David, I'd be very happy to have you as my son-in-law. Ooh, this really put David on the spot. It, gave, he, it allowed him to look at Michal through new eyes. Only one problem. He's from a shepherd family down in Bethlehem. They're not rich people. They're, they do well down there among the, the Jews, but up here among the Benjaminites and the royal court. Uh, he just isn't, he hasn't got a princess's dowry, that's for sure. So that word goes back to Saul. He sends back his servants and says, tell him not to worry. All I want is a hundred dead Philistines as proof of his courage 
and his worthiness to be my son-in-law, there will be no dowry. That's all I require. Well, that's fantastic. 100 dead Philistines. Even if you're using machine guns, 100 dead Philistines is something. And you draw a sword and a, sh a short dagger and go out and fight Philistines and bring in 100. Now, it's probable that it was kind of like a basketball team. I think that the, that the troops kind of lined David up there on his side. In any event, they, they made it possible for him to bring the proof that a hundred Philistines had gone down under his sword in the next battle. This was most frustrating to Saul. <laughs> and he had to attend a wedding he never expected to come off. And, and Jonathan must have been there with the greatest of delight. This is a fine brother-in-law. He loves him, glad to have him as a relative, and Michelle and David are very much in love. So everything goes fine for just a little while. <clears throat> they go on their honeymoon. Finally, Saul can't stand it anymore. He's been defeated every time he's tried to get at this boy. The Philistines can't kill him. He kills Philistines, gets the king's daughter. Everything falls into line for him. So he finally got his servants together, and he said, I want this man killed. I hate him, and I want him killed. He made the announcement. He wanted him killed. Well, Jonathan got out fast, got David in hiding, and says, hide out fast. Father's gone into one of his frenzies. So David hid just long enough for Jonathan to go in and talk to his father. And he said, Father, do you know you don't have a, you don't have a more loyal man in this whole kingdom than David? I hate him. But, but, Father, if you killed him, you'd be shedding innocent blood. You realize that? Innocent blood. Yes, Father, innocent blood. He could really pick that one up and push that one hard. Innocent blood, Father. Oh, that'd be bad. Yes, Father, that would be bad. He's one of your most loyal. Oh, well, bring him back, bring him back, bring him back. So here you've got this schizophrenic Saul. First he's all for David, and then he's going to kill him. And so um, it says Saul repented, and David was able to return. And I got the good news from Jonathan that it was all right. And then he went out to war. If, if David could have just been casual about life, there's some people that are just naturally controversial. And David was one of them. And every time he'd go out, he'd just do some more things to provoke Saul. And so one night after apparently one of the victory dinners, which they always had after a great battle, Saul is sitting there chewing on his gums and filling himself full of hatred, and, and he goes schizo, and he finally decides to go for the javelin. He reaches back one of these heavy war javelins. They weren't very long. They're not long like a spear. They have a, usually have a shaft about that big around. They have a real hard, long, heavy head on them. And he lifted up that war javelin and whanged it away at David and, and could have killed him. Uh, David, of course, fled and uh, went home and as I mentioned to you, I, I wanted to get a note in on the psalm somewhere, and I thought that was a good place to put it, so you could catch David's spirit. Because the earliest psalms attributed to him seem to come about this time, as he later tried to describe his feelings as his father-in-law, the king, the one he had served, and the one that he had tried to love and support, tried to murder him. And the love that he had for his wife and all of the things that sh shortly happened, well... <clears throat> he woke up during the night and he found that King's guards had surrounded the house. Didn't want to wake them up after all these. This is a part of the royal family. But come dawn, you know, and it's convenient. Why? They'll pick him up because uh, Saul the king says pick him up. And uh, 
When Mr. Hoover says, pick them up, you go out and pick them up, you see? So it certainly would be so with the king. And uh, <clears throat> when they realized they were surrounded, who was it told him to flee? Michelle said, he'll kill you. He'll kill you, David. Get out. You've got to go. So <clears throat> she helped him escape through one of the windows and apparently down, down the side and so that he didn't go by any of the main entrances where the guards were sleepily waiting out till dawn. <clears throat> and he, he was able to get away. And so the next day, they, they, they finally knocks on the, knock on the door. Michelle says, I'm sorry. As you can see for yourself, he's very ill. And he had a, she'd fixed up a mannequin there in the bed. And uh, he was all covered up and she was terribly ill. So they went back and they said, well, don't have to worry about him for a while. <clears throat> he's pretty sick. And then Saul says, then bring him in the bed. I'll kill him myself. Oh, he was really mad. Yeah, crazy. I mean, really mad. Mad, like Shakespeare says. So um, they went back and went to take the bed and happened to look in it, and lo and behold, they've been fooled. So they take Michelle instead. And then she's taken back to her half-mad father and, and said, why did you do this? And she has an alibi. What was it? She, compelled. I mean, he would have killed me if I hadn't. See, this, this is, you don't have to be much of an experienced investigator to know there's something wrong with this alibi. <laughs> David is gone when she fibs. David fled to Ramah, which was um, a logical thing. He, he, who, who's he looking for? He's looking for the man that got him into all this. Who was that? Yes, Samuel anointed him to be king. <clears throat> what goes on here? He's trying to kill me. Oh, Samuel said, that's too bad. I know how he is. You come with me. So he takes him over here to the suburbs where they have the school of the prophets. And David sits down there and enjoys that beautiful spirit that they had in these um, uh, special testimony meetings and so forth that they were holding. Of course, it didn't take long for Saul to have his spies tell him where this refuge, uh, the fugitive son is, son-in-law. So he sent some messengers. How many did he send? How many groups? Two or three. Now he sent three all together. And each one uh, would join. They'd, they'd, uh, they'd sit down and kind of see how the things were. <laughs> and that wonderful, beautiful spirit would take possession of them and they'd say, my, this is so nice, this is so nice. So finally, Saul went himself and he was so angry by the time he got over there, just had to go across the valleys. It isn't very far. Gibeah over to Ramah, he just went across the road about half a mile, and uh, the people said, well, of course, the, they're all down over at the School of the Prophets. And it's interesting that Saul would go in there, and uh, he's ready to commit murder. And that sweet spirit takes possession of him, and he feels so good, he just takes off his royal robes and s settles them down on the bench and sits down with the rest of these young priests and just loves it. He's had this happen to him once before, before he was made king. You remember that? Samuel told him that he'd meet some priests and or some students of the school of the prophets. And that the spirit would come over him and he would enjoy it so much. Well, he enjoys it again. And here's Samuel up here undoubtedly talking, you know, watching things going on, trying to keep a nice spiritual atmosphere, but you got a murderer coming in here and a fugitive going out there. It's a little distracting, even for a prophet. <laughs> so when Samuel left, he went back to 
The next person that he thought maybe could help him, who was that? His good friend, the crown prince. So he went back to Jonathan, and he says, your father's trying to kill me, it's just terrible. Well, he says, wait till father cools down, and, and maybe everything will be all right when he comes back from Ramah. Anyway, I'll talk to him. And a strange thing that happened. He came back all right, and uh, we sat down to dinner and uh, said, well, where's, where's David? Where's the son of Jesse? Isn't he going to come and eat? It's a good old Viking spirit. You're going to kill him just a little while ago. Well, I've forgiven him. Where is he? Ought to be here. Have, have food with us. And uh, Jonathan spoke up and indicated he'd been in contact with David and that David would like to come, but he was afraid. So, you're in conspiracy with him. And he grabbed the javelin and Jonathan almost got it. Jonathan realized the man was psychotic. There was no, nothing to, uh, no, no opportunity to reason with him. And so there, there had been a little signal worked out between the two. It was impossible for Jonathan to do anything about it. He was to say to his arrow caddy, you know, he's out shooting, and, and uh, his retriever, he, was, he would say to him, the arrow is beyond thee. And that was to be the warning that stay where you are. Father is still on a murderous rampage. But if he said that they were this side of the arrow caddy, why, uh, that meant it looked like things were okay and he could come out. So he said, the arrows are beyond thee. And so the boy went out. Anyway, he found the arrows finally. And, and Jonathan said, now, you take the, the bow and the arrows and everything. I've finished my archery practice and you go, in, go on into town. Then he just hung around hoping that David would come out. Did David come out? Yeah, he's been out without food, disheveled, been in hiding here for three days. He's in bad shape, but Jonathan said there isn't a chance. He's really off his rocker now, and I don't think I can do anything for you with him. And so these, these two men who loved each other made their, their, their covenant that no matter what happened to either of them, they would always be friends and always be true to each other. And then Jonathan departed, and David was told he'd better just stay out of sight. Well, you can't stay out of sight without food. He dares not contact anybody. Saul's spies are everywhere. So he goes to a very nearby town, you see. It's Nob. It's only not more than a mile away, close in toward Jerusalem. Now, don't forget the name Nob. Nob, that's an easy one to remember. Gibeah, Ramah, and Nob. One of the things about the Jewish scholars, when I get over there, they don't believe the divinity of the Bible and the prophets, but they believe it's history, and they know every little nook and cranny of, the, of that whole land over there. And they'll point to this pile of rocks and tell you all the fabulous things that happened on top of that pile of rocks. And they got names for every place. They know where everything happened. And, of course, this hasn't been part of our culture, and we want to gradually make it part of our culture. So he went to the one place where he thought he might get some food, somebody who ministers to the poor and the needy. Who's that? The high priest Ahimelech, who is the great-grandson of none other than whom? Eli. Well, Eli and his two sons were killed. Or the sons were killed and the old father died when Samuel was just a young fellow. What, what's happened here, do you think? How does there happen to be a high priest who's a descendant of Eli? What does this tell us? That some of their, their descendants of those two sons that were killed remained and continued to function uh, in the capacity of uh, administrators of the Aaronic priesthood ordinances at the tabernacle. 
Now, I've already given the answer to the next question. What was so important uh, at Nob that would attract David? Well, it was the fact the old tabernacle was there. You see, it's now, um, it's nearly 500 years old. That's quite an old tent, quite a tent, made of skins and fine linen and beautifully embroidered. And what a history that tabernacle's been through. And uh, so he goes there. These are the conditions of those days. Does the, does the high priest have food? No, the people aren't making their tithes and offerings lately. And he's poverty-stricken himself. They're not bringing in the shoulder and the chest as they are supposed to do of all their kosher beef. A little chiseling going on here. The poor old high priest having a hard time getting along. All he's got is what? Unleavened bread, which is supposed to be eaten by whom? But that's a technicality. And Jesus later pointed out during his ministry that the high priest felt under these very uh, extreme circumstances that he would be justified in sharing some of this very special sacred bread with David. Now David considers himself at war, and so he, en he engages in stratagem, something that is completely illegal and objectionable in time of peace, but which is accepted by all nations and apparently even the Lord himself in time of war. Stratagem. Uh, where there's role playing and all kinds of things going on. Uh, was the high priest suspicious of David? Yeah, he's all disheveled, you know, three days growth of beard. What do you want food for? Why don't you go to the king's house? I mean, there's something wrong here. Well, he left the impression that he had a body of men out in the bush. He needed food anyway, and so he gave him these, this bread, unleavened bread. And then all of a sudden, who showed up around the tent? I'd remember his name if I were you. His name is Doeg, Doeg. And what, what nationality? He's an Edomite. He's Arab, but he's converted to Israel, the religion of Israel. And uh, he's one of the chief stewards of the king. Did it scare David? Yeah, he had no weapon. He thought he might be attacked. So he said very quickly to the high priest, uh, got a sword, got a sword, got a sword. Did he have a sword? Yeah, whose? Yeah, Goliath. That, that's quite an heirloom, you see, to have. So he, he gave it to him, and David departed. Now, where did he go? The worst place he could have gone. Not, uh, no place we can think of that would have been as bad. Where did he go? He went to the home of... Goliath's family that still survived him. After all, the Israelites coming down into Gath to trade all the time. Gath is just down at the point of Sorek Valley. There's a valley that leads, that leads up into Jerusalem. If I can kind of draw it here. The mountains come down like this. Now there are two valleys that take you up into the highlands quite readily. There's another one further up. But these are the ones that are famous. This is Sorek, S-O-R-E-K-E-K. And this is Selah, that's E-L-A-H. Now it was in Selah Valley, or Elah Valley, that um, uh, we have um, Goliath killed. And uh, it's in Sorek Valley that we have Gath. And Gath is located by the So here's Jerusalem up here in the tops of the mountains, around here. Here's the Jordan River and the Dead Sea down here, uh, 1,300 feet below sea level. So right at the entrance of Sorek Valley is Gath. And you see the Israelites would come down there to trade, 
and they had to get all their iron for their plows, etc., during much of this period from down among the Philistines. So they were accustomed to having Israelites around. So David could very easily have gone to the marketplace and hidden himself and just got lost in the crowd. But he's a brash young fellow. We are not told why he did it. But where did he go? He went to the palace of King Achish. I mean, he's used to kind of living high on the, you know what? And uh, so he doesn't fool around, you know, with ordinary people. He just goes to the palace and offers to work or get a job or mingles among the fellows and has a big laughing good time. And he's a nice fellow, easy to talk to. And he seems to get along all right and ate well uh, with the king's servants. He seems to have integrated himself until somebody said, you know, he looks familiar. I think he's top of the ten wanted list uh, over here in the post office. Uh, I think that he is uh, David, the, the giant killer. And finally this got to David that there was a great suspicion that he might be the one, might be David's. Philistines probably hadn't been close enough to him to identify him, but close enough to get a general impression. Anyway, they went to King Achish and told him they thought that was the case. And so Achish comes to behold him and to just meet him face to face to see if this could possibly be true. And uh, David knows he's in real trouble, so what does he do? He throws a fit. And it says he scrabbled on the gates and the wall and so on. Isn't that a good word? He scrabbled. Well, you can really see him doing clawing and so forth. He drools all over his beard and blah, 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 blah. And he really puts on an act. And he's a good actor. And the king said, you stupid people, you, you mean to tell me that madman would be the David that killed Goliath? Throw him out. So to the relief of David, they threw him out. And uh, he headed up for the second valley. And right in the center of that valley, there is an Acropolis. It's a high limestone hill, uh, just uh, filled, pocked with caves. Some of them are man-made, and some are the result of the water coming down through the lime and washing out the caves. But when you get in there, it's just like the catacombs of Rome. I mean, no Roman legionnaire would ever go into the Christian catacombs. You never came out. So it was always desirable to stop at the entrance of the catacombs. You never chased them inside. And once you get inside the catacombs, you'll realize why they never came out. It's a wonder Christians ever found their way out. Uh, that, those are the, that, you never saw anything like it. And it goes down layer after layer after layer where those people would live and bury their dead and so forth. Well, that's the way it was there. And uh, so he got there and it was safe. In fact, later Philistine City is built around this Acropolis. And it was called the, do you remember the name of it? The Stronghold or the Abdullah, the Abdullah. Now, when people heard that David was there, who started to join him and sort of form a Robin Hood's band? Everybody who was a fugitive from Saul. And you could get to, to be a fugitive from Saul very easily. It was like IRS. You can get in trouble real easy. And so it wasn't long before he had how many people? 400. Later he gets 600. It kind of builds up. And these are his 600 valiant men. And um, among those who came to him, and undoubtedly were being persecuted at that time by the officers of King Saul, 
or three magnificent, handsome, good-looking, powerfully built nephews who later become the three major commanders of the armies of David as he moves up into the ranks and finally becomes a king, first of Judah and then of all Israel. Then who else joined him? His mother and his father. But this was no time to have his mother and father join him. Uh, he just had to get them out of there. He was going to be in camp life. They were elderly. Uh, this just wasn't right. And so he decided to go to the land of his great-great maternal grandmother. What was her name? And she was of what tribe? Moab. So he goes around to the king of the Moabites and uh, See, we can't put it on that map. Uh, Dead Sea, Jordan River, Jerusalem. <clears throat> he goes around, the whole of are down here. So to get there, you have to go around here. So much of a trek, take a week or so, get down over here to the capital of the Was he welcome? Sure, anybody who's an enemy of Saul is a friend of the king of the Moabites. And so he was welcomed in. He said, will you take care of my mother and my father while I'm during my present distress? What did the king say? Happy to do it. Then all of a sudden there showed up in the camp of, king of, of David, who's not yet king, a prophet. What's his name? Now Gad wrote a book. Uh, later we find the scribe saying, this history of David is based upon the writings of Samuel and Gad and uh, Nathan, one or two others that they mentioned. So Gad was one of the great prophets and writers at that time, but we don't have any of his writings today. And he said to David, now it's the will of the Lord that you stay in this vicinity, stay in the land of Judah. And there's a forest down there, that'd be a good place to go down near Hebron, and you go down there. So that's where David went to stay, and that's where Saul soon found out he was, and that's where we're continuing next time.